I remember when I was working on some startup stuff and it was a Saturday night. All my friends were in the main room of our apartment, drinking, boozing, having a blast, playing loud music, and I was sitting, grinding, and working. And I distinctly remember someone asking, where's Peters? Someone replied, oh, he's probably in his room working on startup stuff. And they said that in a very condescending tone. One of my friends jokes and said, again, in a snarky, condescending manner, wouldn't it be funny if Peters was more successful than all of us and the startup worked? It was like a joke to them that I was pouring all this energy into this stuff. And it powered me through, I think, a lot of the dark days and a lot of the questioning moments when I wanted to throw in the towel because I didn't want them to be right. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today's episode explores the story of community builder Jacob Peters and how he uses creativity and intellect to build communities that stick. As a kid, he transformed a sprawling Lego collection into an e-commerce empire. Later, he built a community of data science to thousands of people in New York and used this as a jumping point to create a venture-backed startup. All of that leads up to where this interview is actually taking place. So Jacob invited me to Paris Hilton's old mansion. Now it's known as the Launch House. And it's this beautiful property overlooking the Hollywood Hills. Here, cohorts of entrepreneurs work together, throw events, and just kind of do cool stuff. I can feel the buzzing energy almost immediately as I walk past the pool, up a staircase, and into a floor-to-ceiling glass room with expansive views of the city. I could also feel Jacob's energy, his excitement, as he just got off the phone with an investor that could be something huge for his community. Unfortunately, I can't say who, but it's probably a name you might recognize. But before this point, before the success, was a lot of hard work, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of pain. We'll uncover the story of perseverance and resilience that underlies Jacob's innovation and achievement. And to start, we'll dive into Jacob's childhood as an army brat. So I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, which coincidentally is actually where I went to school. The reason that I was born in Charlottesville was because my dad was actually stationed there while he was in the military. And this takes me to some of my earliest memories. I was probably three and a half years old. The year was 1998, and I was cowering underneath the dining room table. Had my arms clenched around one of the legs, and I was scared because my father was coming home from Korea, where he'd been for a year. And I was so young that I didn't even really have many memories of who my dad was. So I was legitimately scared that this strange man was going to be entering our house. And my mom was in tears. She was excited. Was there anything that like remained constant? within your family structure or like just things you did? The thing that remained constant was my mom being my biggest cheerleader. We lived in a single income household. My mom was sick. She couldn't really work growing up. And my dad, you know, was, was in the army. It was a stressful job, a lot of hours. So where did you like look to for structure? What do you turn to? Well, I had to look inward and turn to myself. And a big reason for that is because I had a little brother that was 18 months younger than me. And, and I certainly had to, had, had to be there for him in a lot of different ways. And I realized that the only way I could be there for him is if, if I had found inner strength from, from within. Another way I feel like you create structure is also with play. And I kind of want to delve into what part Legos played into your life. To most people, Legos are nothing more than a you know, childhood plastic building block toy. But for me, it was everything. And they fundamentally changed the arc of uh, you know, my life and my, my career. 
Legos would definitely be an outlet for collaboration and to get away from you know, all the hecticness of our life between my brother and I. In fact, I distinctly remember a quote that my parents actually bring up all the time too, where my brother said, Jacob, why do we always have to play Legos? <laughs> because we'd probably spend, you know, six to eight hours some days in our, in our youth just sprawling on the floor, you know, building things, sorting things. Uh, and our operations started to get more and more sophisticated. But I think the most impressive thing was our sorting system, which ended up being the foundation for us to build 10 times crazier things when it came to, to custom creations. Legos were an escape, an alternate reality where every piece was customized and organized on Jacob's terms. It was a secure respite when all other aspects of his childhood were clouded in change and uncertainty. Even his mother was threatened by dire health conditions. In the real world, one where his mother was less present, he couldn't rearrange and rebuild what was going on around him. So instead, he learned to rearrange and build what was going on within him and assimilate to his ever-changing circumstances. He took this skill to elementary school as he tried to fit in, and in this process, he'd discover parts of his identity he'd also wish to reconstruct. The, the medium of the, of, of the Lego brick is, is, especially if you're building custom creations, is the also ultimate forcing function for creativity. A great analogy is the process by which diamonds are created. Like you basically require a massive amount of pressure and forces to be applied in a particular type of way. For Legos, as an example, you know, if you think about creativity, like creativity is boundless. What you can do is you can apply a medium and certain rules and constraints and like a certain way of doing things, i.e. the ways that different Lego blocks interlock together. And that becomes like the pressure that you can apply to like a boundless creativity space to turn a, an idea into a physical manifestation of a thing. So that's a way that you know, Lego bricks can basically be like a forcing function to kind of bound creativity to create something that physically embodies an idea. These creations, the sorting algorithm that you had, the intense structure that you created out of nothing would imply a kid that's smart. Is that a label that your parents ever put on you or encouraged in you? Definitely. But the crazy thing is I hated being called smart. I was absolutely embarrassed by it. It caused me a strange amount of shame because anytime you're, you're labeled as something, inherently you feel different. So for that reason, I came to hate the idea of being smart. I think the adult society lauds and pedestalizes intellect, but not the society by which most of us are shaped, which is, you know, between the ages of five and 18 years old. In fact, I think a different type of label is what's lauded in that period of our life in the environment of you know, primary and secondary school. What's that label? Popularity. Cool. Influence. You know, being seen as the, the cool kid. Judgment is really not passed until you see other people judge that. Right? You don't pass judgment on your internal characteristics until you see other people judge those. And then it's like, oh, that's bad or that's good. And so I'm wondering where you got that judgment from. You know, I, I was the kid that was getting taken out of school to be, uh, you know, in different level math classes, different gifted and talented programs. You know, I, I remember it was fourth or fifth grade. I got taken into a meeting by the principal and everyone thought I was in trouble. But in reality, he was showing me this new math competition that he wanted me to participate in and represent the school for. And, you know, I just remember those moments where I'd be called upon and people would look at me. And for whatever reason, I would just assume that the judgment or the way they look at me was immediately negative. Jacob was definitely smart, 
But I think what's interesting is this ability to look at himself through this third person perspective and objectively see what he needed to change to become who he thought he should be. He's almost Zen or meditative and being able to step away from himself and realize you are not you. You are just who you choose to be. You have more agency over your life than you realize. With these thoughts swirling around, Jacob had the right process, but the wrong goal. Unfortunately, he was misguided in the image he was pursuing. You said earlier, being cool was the commodity that mattered. So how did you use your intellect to chase that? I put myself in a box. I basically believed the story that I was telling myself that I wasn't cool. I laid out a problem statement in my mind that if I could become cool, life would be perfect. So that became the North Star. How old were you when you made this North Star decision? Probably around fourth or fifth grade. And the way my brain works is as soon as I make a North Star and decide that I want to go get something, I do it at all costs. From that point on, I very carefully architected almost every single social decision in my life. The types of friends that I would hang out with, the things that I would say, all through the lens of this idea of like, what do I need to do to be seen as the cool kid? So I had a great friend that I'd known since childhood. And based on the people that I knew that he was associating with, I basically made this mental determination that, you know, he wasn't cool enough to associate with anymore. So I purposely would stop hanging out with him, spending time with him. And, you know, I know that that's something that definitely hurt him. It was confusing. Uh, It was kind of hurtful inside and confusing to me. But that's a a great example of, of something I had to do to work towards this new end. Were you unhappy? I was so unhappy. I was unhappy for a pretty long time. It's like... Why keep going? Delusion. (laughs) I was happy in short-term bursts. I remember like as an example, you know, when I was in like ninth grade, within the first week, I basically made this mental map of everyone that I had met in high school. And I was like, this person's cool. This person's not. This person's cool. And I would just like systematically seek out and want to become friends with the kids that I thought were objectively, you know, cooler, more popular than everybody, than everybody else. And, you know, I'd get these little dopamine hits when I'd strike up a conversation or make friends with with people in in those groups that I'd, I'd put into places in my mind. But it was never long term fulfilling. And maybe this is rooted in some deep-seated insecurity and a longingness to just be be liked by everyone. I mean, isn't it like at its core, like just acceptance? To belong, yeah. I was trying to create my own perfect social palace that I could live in and I could belong uh, and, and be the one that everyone looked up to. Was there anything you could do with that power? No. It was imaginary power within the four walls and the confines of, of that 8 to 18-year-old environment. The one thing that I think it has done is it's taught me how to be deeply, deeply empathetic with other people because there's no way you can decide that a random stranger is someone you want to be friends with and then go actually become friends with them and then integrate them into your life if you don't have a natural ability to empathize with who they are and what they're all about and become a person that they want to associate with. Sure, there was emotional investment in friendships and his love of Legos, but to build social and financial capital, Jacob somewhat had to disconnect from the emotional weight behind his social choices. In his social climb, he looked at each friend, each interaction as a building block to create his image of Mr. Popular. I know I asked him this in the interview, but it still baffles me, like why he would prioritize the image of happiness and friendship if the reality made him suffer. He lost close friends and true happiness. And there actually is a scientific explanation for this. So cognitive neuroscientists at Duke University, Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, explained Jacob's somewhat irrational drive to be socially accepted. 
In their book, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, Hare and Woods reveal that a growing number of studies contradict Darwin's survival of the fittest sentiments and instead show that survival is best achieved through partnership, cooperation, and sociability. In one example, they compare dogs to wolves. Though wolves are definitely the more fit competitor, the sociability that dogs have adopted have given them shelter, while wolves have become an endangered population. As explained in an article published by Harvard, this survival tool, social connection, is further encouraged through the neurological reward chemical dopamine. Research shows that when we experience a positive social interaction, whether in the form of a smile or now even a like on Instagram, we receive a hit of dopamine. So biologically, we all have an addictive survivalist desire to obtain social approval. Jacob just had the resourcefulness and ability to compartmentalize, which maximized his social survival throughout high school. But there was still one dirty secret that could destroy his reputation. And for some reason, he couldn't let it go. Instead, he'd work to expand his Lego empire. So something that I don't get in your story is like you are on this road since fifth grade to become a popular kid, right? But you're still you're still freaking super invested into this whole Lego world, yeah. which like seems <laughs> the antithesis of what it means to be like the cool kid. So this was the dirty little secret of my life. <laughs> on the surface, <laughs> I was this super cool guy that was you know generally well liked, but behind the scenes, I was you know, the biggest nerd running uh, an online empire <laughs> and an empire out of my basement, as my parents would say. So it began when, you know, my brother and I basically realized that we wanted to grow our collection, right? We wanted to scale the size and the scope of the different custom creations that we were rebuilding. But, you know, as I mentioned, we didn't come from the, the most incredibly privileged background. So we were like, how can we scale the number of Lego blocks we have, you know, without actually purchasing you know, all of these brand new sets? So we basically realized that there was an arbitrage opportunity where we could go to garage sales and buy massive secondhand lots, you know, 50 pounds worth of Legos that when they were brand new would have costed like three or four or five grand in some cases. We can get them for, you know, close to like 95% off. So we started scaling up our collection that way. And every single morning, every single Saturday morning for years, we'd wake up, my dad would drive us around to all of the local garage sales and we'd just buy Lego lot after Lego lot. And we probably 50X the size of our collection. How many Legos is that? It's almost a few tons, like literal metric tons. Metric tons? Yes. That's so many. It, it takes up our parents, you know, half of their, half of their basement. So we discovered the arbitrage opportunity where we could buy these sets for significantly cheaper, but you can only capitalize on an arbitrage which you sell. And that's when we discovered that this hobby was highly monetizable. So we began parting out all of the individual pieces within these lots that we were amassing and amalgamating and selling the individual bricks or rebuilding the sets that those bricks came from online for like a huge return on our investment. And it was while doing that that we discovered there was a massive adult online fan community of Lego enthusiasts. And apparently this group of people is actually responsible for almost 10% of Lego's sales. So we got very involved in a bunch of different online Lego communities. I discovered that there was conferences and conventions where Lego enthusiasts from all over the world would meet up and we would f fund our travel to them based on our profits from the e-commerce e business. And we, we heavily integrated ourselves in these communities. When you were in high school, you would look and see like, that kid's cool. That kid's not cool. How is that radar that you had cultivated operating within the confines of this Lego world? 
So Lego was my getaway, so I didn't need to operate the radar at that point in time. And it was it was it was relieving, I think, to be in an environment where like you're completely accepted for who you are and your identity of being a Lego enthusiast and a and a, and a Lego builder. So it was almost like an alternative reality in a sense. And and I and I loved the escape and I loved the getaway. But sometimes those worlds would incidentally collide. I remember we would host parties at my in my basement in, in high school and my brother and I would spend always like an hour or two beforehand just like boxing up all the Legos, making sure that they're hidden. We'd cover them with bed sheets and towels and um, sometimes during a party, one of my friends would stumble upon like a stray brick and they'd be like, what is this? And my heart would almost <laughs> skip a beat. <laughs> so you hit it pretty well. Yeah, we hit, we hit it pretty well. Did you have like a proudest moment, like, you know, around 15, 16 with this Lego business? So this had become more than just my brother at a, at a certain point in time. It became a full family operation. It even got to the point where like my dad would go out to garage sales, you know, when we were busy with high school sports without us and he'd come back with like massive Lego lots. And one day he, he came back with a modestly sized lot of, of Legos for us, but he was in a super somber mood. Then he, he told us the story. He'd bought these Legos from a father at a garage sale whose son had just passed away. And he was very concerned with the Legos going to a good home. When he told us that, we just went really silent. And it was just so thankful that he saw us and the story that my father had told him about. And the whole journey we'd gone on building our Lego empire were the right people to, to take this collection. That was probably the, the most memorable moment that's really stuck with me throughout all the craziness. You know, it wasn't the crazy amounts of sales that we did. It wasn't the, the wild creations. It was something as simple as you know, co-opting the collection of someone whose son had, had passed away and, and trusting that we were the right people to give it a good home. Building his Lego empire became more than a business. For Jacob, it became a community. He could look at people who shared this weird, beautiful interest and see them, like really see them. This community was an escape from the curated facade of the high school popularity contest. He didn't need to worry about being cool with these people. He just needed to care about Legos, which he did. Jacob learned a lot from this Lego business, but these principles could be applied to anything. But the culture of drinking and risk-taking that saturated his high school friend group pushed Jacob to take the lessons of his Lego business through a gateway to explore a darker world. So in the pursuit of being the cool kid, you know, naturally something that came with being associated with being cool is, is, is drinking culture. But obviously we were all underage. So I got the idea to kind of use my internet savviness to get all my friends fake IDs. And one thing led to another and got involved in some interesting circles in kind of the early days of crypto and Bitcoin. We, we got hooked up with some, some people running illicit fake ID rings out of China. It was kind of in the, the, the heydays of the Silk Road. And my brain didn't even really know how to, to process all of this at the time. It, it almost felt like a, an out-of-body experience in, in some ways. How did it progress? I mean, you don't have to go super into detail, but like you enter through the Tor browser and what do you see? And like, when do you realize, oh, I can buy this stuff that I'm interested in or I can hire a hitman. Yeah. <laughs> you can watch people getting tortured. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really scary, the stuff that's out there and it makes you lose your innocence really quick. This was definitely a big impactful moment in my in my life. And it was even more so once, you know, we started basically minting these these fake IDs for more than just our friends. And it went all the way through the end of high school into college. And then things basically got a little bit hot. And we had a sense that, you know, authorities are starting to get a little too close to home. So we shut everything down. 
And that was also an important lesson in, in vulnerability. Like, you know, at a certain point, like when you're 18, 19, like you feel, you feel unstoppable in a lot of ways, especially when the, the money printer is where we're, where we're worrying. But, you know, there's real consequences for things. Never again will I touch something that is such a such an ethical gray area. Like it's one thing if you're building a, a company out in the open, you know, you're a CEO, you're a founder. People know that that's a hard job and, uh, you know, you can confide in them, get comfort from your mentors. But when you're running a business that nobody can know about, really, it's kind of a burden that only you can shoulder within your own brain. And that's it, it really weighs on you after a while. I actually don't see that much difference between the burden you shouldered with this Lego business and the burden you shouldered with the illicit ID minting. Like both of them, you couldn't really be out in the open. You're absolutely right. I, w I wish this podcast was being recorded because <laughs> I have a crazy smile on my face right now uh, thinking about the parallels and the dot that you just connected between those two things that I didn't even realize existed until right now. The burden of a secret business is not unknown to Jacob. But the gray areas of running a fake ID business through the dark web have to be kept secret from the law. The Lego business just had to be kept secret from his peers. But in some ways, I think Jacob saw the risk as inverted. Running a fake ID business was cool, so it actually inflated and integrated into his exterior of popularity. But he was losing touch with that innocent kid who just loved Legos. Where was his morality? I'm not sure Jacob knew. So you mentioned the risk. There was a time that you were confronted physically about this kind of stuff. I remember you telling me something about getting jumped at school. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that, that was another moment in the pursuit of kind of ascending this imaginary social hierarchy. I kind of got a little bit out of touch with uh, what was ethically sound. So there was a fair bit of thievery that was always happening in the high school locker rooms. Got myself a bit wrapped up in it. And, uh, and, and one thing led to another and... You know, as, as a result of a dispute over a stolen iPod, I got jumped. And this happened in the middle of the school day, in the middle of the hallway, during the change of classes. Hundreds of my peers nearby, everybody saw it. It was the talk of the school for months. And it was jumped to the point of losing vision in my left eye, physically, mentally incapacitated for almost five minutes. And I had to get airlifted to Shock Trauma Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, like 45 minutes away. Missed school for close to five, six months bleeding in my brain and my eye and I the doctors weren't sure if I was going to lose vision in my left eye permanently and I couldn't even tie my shoes or remember my birthday when I came to we, we didn't even realize actually how bad it was until I'd been home for a week and couldn't even follow simple instructions on like a box of like how to make brownies so I kind of had to relearn a lot of basic life skills go through occupational therapy and again you know people had known on the outside what had happened but behind closed doors, just like the Lego hobby and illicit businesses that I dabbled in. Nobody really knew the real struggle and the real pain. And I, to this day, I, I haven't really told anyone, maybe up until right now, the, the full degree of how traumatizing this and, and challenging this experience was. Using these false identities with the outside world isolated Jacob. He didn't have real friends that could help him recover from the physical and mental trauma of getting jumped. It left him struggling through occupational therapy, relearning basic life skills, and searching for identity. As he worked to rebuild himself, he swore he would change. He swore something would be different. And so he arrived at college, sure he could be something new. So after graduation, where do you go? What are you thinking about? So I got into a pretty good school, University of Virginia. It's funny, I told myself on the very first week that I wanted to lean into being you know, the nerdy guy. 
I didn't care about the parties and I didn't want to join a fraternity. And I, I finally had an opportunity to restart and start over and finally embrace you know, the intelligence and do things completely differently. And it only took a week for that to totally get cast aside because I fell into the trap of, you know, cool friends and girls and realizing that like it was the, the popularity game all over again, but on a much crazier scale. And, you know, there was like parties and cars and like just much more fun stuff involved that that come with being in a college environment so I, I fell back into my old habits I was like I was seduced it's like I was addicted to this to that game of like rising to the top of this like imaginary social ladder is that something you were conscious of or was it autopilot probably autopilot at that point you know it's tough to compare this type of scenario to like the addictive nature of substance abuse or other things but I was straight up addicted I thought that having some sort of big epiphany and a promise to myself was enough. I even remember one day I wrote in my hand in Sharpie, permanent marker. It literally looked like a tattoo. It was the stupidest thing ever. And it said, T-I-T-D-I-C. Today is the day I change. So I was so ready to make a commitment to myself. But as soon as I started realizing that the same principles in this environment existed that did in high school and that like, you know, I had this ability to create like an imaginary social ladder all over again and ascend something. It was too addictive to to not sink all my energy into. And I caved. And uh, I didn't look back for at least three years. And I hadn't been happy throughout those three years. In the back of my mind, I'd you know, always think that like I was squandering my intelligence and that I felt unfulfilled. Like there was some sort of like, there was something more that I was missing. Yeah, you're squandering your potential. Exactly, squandering your potential. Like the athlete that didn't practice as hard as they could have or didn't spend every waking moment or hour in the gym. Jacob was squandering his potential, and it was because he indulged in the addictive parts of his personality. For most people, it's drinking, drugs, and gambling. But for Jacob, that high was popularity. Drinking, drugs, gambling might seem different than popularity, but pleasure registers in the brain the same way, a release of dopamine. An addiction comes when the brain gets hooked on an easy way to get that dopamine rush. Jacob got hooked on being well-liked, being cool. And once the brain finds that shortcut to dopamine, it will shut other avenues down to focus on that one shortcut it's addicted to. This is a theme throughout Jacob's life. He kept a cool front while his intelligence, hobbies, and struggles took a back seat. He rarely shared his true self with people, and so he never gave himself the chance to develop deep connection. He was sleepwalking through life. But luckily, it wouldn't be forever. And I woke up when I was a few weeks into my summer internship at J.P. Morgan in New York City. How old were you? 2021. You know, I'd gotten good enough grades and had kind of skated by to get this awesome job opportunity. You know, it was while there that I realized like, wow, this feels like a massive loop. I don't know how I can spend the next 40 years of my life doing this. Basically, the, the idea of like going to work on the same schedule, doing monotonous tasks, after work, getting home, scrolling through Instagram, watching Netflix, doing the same things with the same friends, with the same people, going to the same bars, not doing things outside the box, like just being comfortable. And I thought that was the path. And, and that was my first experience, you know, beyond these like kind of walled environments that I'd been in, right? High school, college. And this was a different type of walled environment. It was, it was the corporate world. Maybe I drew a connection to, to when I discovered the dark web and realized that there are other universes out there that if you look hard enough, it might just be possible to find them. And I found that universe within the bank. So I really started putting myself out there and was getting coffees with different people within the company throughout the summer. And I met this one guy, his name was Sid, my future boss, but I didn't know it at the time. And he was building out a brand new team of data scientists. He had a big budget with a wide remit that was basically find ways to make the bank more data-driven. 
I was like, wow, this is so cool. It's uh, you know a, a new discipline that I know nothing about. Like Harvard Business Review had just written an article saying that like data scientist was going to be the sexiest job of the 21st century, and I was like, this is this is so cool, and it completely bucks the trend of like going into banking or consulting or um, you know just the traditional roles that people coming out of undergrad business school get forced into. I think other people probably thought that it was nerdy. You know, it was the cool thing in college, especially coming out of undergrad B school at UVA, to become an investment banker. But I was genuinely like inspired and like genuinely curious about this world. I finally just by happenstance found something that piqued my, you know, inner nerd. <laughs> I'd never been excited about something this much in my life before up until that point. And that's when I knew something was was there. It's a gut test. You know, this team was not looking for analysts. I was severely underqualified for the position. They were like looking for, you know, senior statisticians and stuff. And by the way, I'd never really programmed for data science before. I'd only ever coded a few basic software apps. So they gave me a case study as a job interview. It was a big data set, way more data than like anything like Excel or spreadsheet could handle. And they were like, you have the weekend to find some insights in this and tell us a story. And this was my last weekend of the summer in New York City. All my intern friends at JP and other other places were, were out partying. And I was in my room for basically like 72 hours straight teaching myself to code taught myself a new programming language and learned enough to be able to deduce some insights from this data, slap together a deck and tell a story that was impressive enough that they decided to pull a ton of strings for me and give me a full-time offer on the bank on this brand new team that, you know, grew from just like under a dozen people to, to 60 by the time that I'd left after, after my first 18 months of being there and securing a full-time offer. So I returned. Things were going exceptionally well while I was there. I got tapped to give the keynote presentation at the Global Data Science Symposium, you know, in front of 6,000 people. Jamie Dimon was there. I also won a hackathon for a, a data project that we'd done and got to have a picture with Jamie, you know, the CEO on the front page of the, the internal newsletter website of the company. I mean, it was a surreal experience and I'd been given a really awesome platform for someone that was that was so young. Honestly, to me, J.P. Morgan seems like the polar opposite of the entrepreneurial spirit. But Jacob was able to bring his founder mentality to a massive company and create a unique avenue he could explore and get excited about. Data science isn't cool, isn't sexy, but Jacob subverted his imagined social hierarchy and realized that this was something he's actually interested and might be good at. Diverging from the path of social acceptance allowed his intelligence to become an asset instead of an embarrassment. He no longer acted dumb or put on a front for his friends. Data science allowed him to be his brainy self. Jacob wouldn't stop there. Fueled by a reinvigorated authenticity, Jacob would expand his interest and build new communities around data science. I decided that I wanted to become a part of the broader New York City data science community, not just the data science community within the bank. So it all started with a random email to a person I found on Craigslist. I didn't know where else to meet random strangers in New York about that topic. And I found this guy who's in Brooklyn and he was looking for a partner to hack on different machine learning problems with. So we got in touch. We met up at a Starbucks and we really hit it off. One thing led to another and we would invite friends of friends. And I invited all the McKinsey data scientists to come meet us at Starbucks. And eventually this thing became a community of thousands of people purely on accident. You know, once we had this thing to a dozen or a few dozen people, we decided to incorporate some software tools to make our lives easier. So we started a meetup chapter. We started a Slack community. We had a newsletter. We ended up getting in touch with some folks at Microsoft and signing a partnership where they would give us 
office space every single week and all these different things compounded and more and more people wanted to get involved. And that's the thing about communities is once you have a certain amount of brand equity and goodwill that you've built with a small subset of people, it compounds very fast and network effect kicks in. And we weren't out to build something big and everlasting. We were just out to upskill our data science skill sets and build a few genuine relationships along the way. And that stuff sells. We would really establish this culture of people just wanting to help each other become better data scientists. That was enough and that was all we needed. It wasn't, you know, in pursuit of some sort of goal where we wanted community members to become customers or recruiting people. It was purely just people helping people. I was in a really unique position where I'd had an understanding of, you know, how to solve problems analytically, how to build analytical software. And I had a great grasp on how problems could be solved with data. And then I also had experience running this community and among other things in my life, like the Lego communities. Those were two great ingredients for the birth of a company. I had told people, you know, I want to start a startup someday. Like, I don't want to be in the corporate world forever. You know, I'm, I have this itch now that's been somewhat scratched because I'm part of such an entrepreneurial team within the bank and I'm doing entrepreneurial things, but it's still not enough. Like, I want to start a company. It sounds cliche, but like anytime you set a big North Star goal for yourself, you know, I think it fundamentally changes the way which you perceive reality. I fundamentally believe that setting clear goals and intentions and then letting the world know about those intentions early and often are a recipe for, for making things happen and breaking out of your loop as we keep going back to. Jacob setting clear goals and intentions can be summed up in the law of attraction. And the law is less a scientific law and more like a life philosophy, but it can definitely feel pseudoscience-y, especially because an 1877 Russian occultist, Helena Blavatsky, coined the term. So take that as you will. But in practice, I think it could be summed up pretty simply. Put out into the world what you want and the world will give it back to you. And this isn't because there's some weird mystical force at play. It's more that you are just like aware of opportunity than opportunity suddenly appearing. For example, if you start searching for a yellow car, you'll probably start seeing yellow cars because your brain is primed to see that information. And so Jacob put out into the world that he wanted to start a business and the world gave back a co-founder. So the two founders got to work. We were two guys that both kind of knew how to code, but neither of us were full stack engineers. So we were basically two non-engineers <laughs> trying to build a potential engineering heavy product to solve some of our pain points that we'd both experienced. While running this community of data scientists, we basically realized that there was no data tools for community builders or for community managers. And it took us a long time to figure out a working model. And we quit our jobs way too prematurely. We got one $5,000 commitment from a customer and it wasn't even $5,000 in revenue. It was like $5,000 of like a marketplace transaction, which was the first version of the product. And we thought that was enough traction to put in our two-week notices and cut off our income streams, give up our apartments and just like figure shit out. Turns out we were dead wrong. It is brutal. I think starting a company is like single-handedly the most psychologically challenging thing I think you can willfully subject yourself to. To go from an environment like JP where... You know, I had all this, ex all the external validation and extrinsic motivation that I needed being seen as like this prodigious analyst and having amazing work friends and a thriving social life in New York. I made like 10 bets at once. Like I completely changed up my entire life, got rid of my morning routine, like, you know, stopped eating healthy, stopped exercising. And it was absurdly challenging. To top it off, we had no business model. We had no idea what we were going to build. We had no clear way that this business was going to work. We applied and 
had an interview but got rejected from Y Combinator twice actually. We had we had no semblance of, of how this was gonna work and the puzzle pieces were gonna fit together. And I was sleeping on couches. I didn't have a home. It was crazy to me that this is seemingly what I'd always wanted. Felt like I was finally out there. I was a real entrepreneur building a company. I had a blank slate. And you know, at the beginning of it, I'd felt so fulfilled and excited. And I questioned everything many times. And me and my co-founder, we almost threw in the towel at a few different moments. I remember when I was working on some startup stuff on the side, and it was a Saturday night. All my friends were in the main room of our apartment, drinking, boozing, having a blast, playing loud music, and I was sitting, grinding, and working. And I distinctly remember someone asking, where's Peters? Someone replied, oh, he's probably in his room working on startup stuff. And they said that in a very condescending tone. Like, oh, he's missing out on the party, you know, to work on his stupid startup is kind of the way it was, <laughs> it was communicated. One of my friends jokes and said, huh, again, in a snarky, condescending manner, wouldn't it be funny if Peters was more successful than all of us and the startup worked? And those are words that I'll never forget. It's a strange chip that I've let stay on my shoulder that's motivated me. And hearing that statement powered me through, I think, a lot of the dark days and a lot of the questioning moments when I wanted to throw in the towel because I didn't want them to be right. Jacob didn't want them to be right. And he was going to do everything he could to ensure that they weren't. But at the same time, he wasn't too far away from the life his friends had. When he first started his company, he was propelled by the momentum of his life in finance. That life was built off the success he had found at J.P. Morgan. Things had lined up. His life seemed in order. So how bad could this next chapter be? That next chapter was one of financial stress and sleep deprivation. I feel like the hustle is so often idealized by the ones who actually made it. But when everything goes shit, the hustle feels like shit. And now, sleeping on some stranger's couch, there was this unescapable sense of uncertainty that loomed overhead in this land between a dream and a nightmare. But Jacob was determined, and the cynicism of his peers only pushed him ahead. So we'd gone through probably nine months now at this point of fumbling with no product market fit, no customers, no sense of direction. But what we'd had done is accidentally built up a pattern recognition ability and a body of knowledge that was probably better than anyone else in the world uh, as it pertains to the different types of communities that were out there. We'd talked to hundreds of community builders to learn their pain points. We'd studied their communities. And very few people in the world were taking such a bird's eye view of the, the industry and the landscape as we were. Indeed, we didn't even realize how how much we'd learned until we got the idea to start sharing our content and our insights with the world. So we started this thing called the Community Club. Slowly progressed into us, you know, writing opinion pieces on where we thought the industry was going and we'd tweet about it into tweet threads. We basically had the closest pulse of anybody on what was topical and important for this industry. That's when we realized we'd learned enough to turn those problems into a software solution. And that was the real birth of the Comsor platform to help make organizations more data-driven. And when anytime you, you put your thoughts out there in the world, like you build a community, you're creating value for people, it just exponentially increases the chances of serendipity favoring you. And that serendipity happened for us in the, the form of a direct message from this guy, Greg, who was the CEO of Remote Year at the time. And he DMs me and says, hey, like, I like the content that you're sharing about communities. See, you might have a product. Like, would love to get an idea of what you're building. 
and maybe it can solve our use case and some of our problems. And I didn't realize he was running a big venture back company. I just thought it was like some random guy, honestly. I, I made the mistake of, but I did zero due diligence before the call and I hop on and he's telling me like, oh yeah, by the way, like, you know, we spend a million dollars on Salesforce every year and we have, you know, $30 million in venture funding. And I'm like, whoa, this is a big fish. And he was so jazzed and excited by what we were building and our conversation that he decided to introduce us to all of his investors. We got our first investor check from that serendipitous Twitter DM, which was a result of us basically being very opinionated and sharing our thoughts uh, and ideas with the world and creating value for people in the, in, the, in, the, in the realm of community. Like we were curators of information and that was enough to get people excited and for us to close our first few few venture checks. So we ended up closing a kind of a pre-seed round with three different institutions, about a million bucks. So there they were, a couple of guys who night and day had been working themselves into the ground, now closing a round of a million dollars in venture capital funding. The months of discomfort and instability finally seemed to pay off. But in the process of building this company, Jacob and his co-founder had learned something unique. They had built their community first and their product second. And by establishing key knowledge about real people involved, they were able to create a product that was tailored and effective. These investors saw that this approach worked and their checks were big. But now Comscore was about to experience something even bigger. So then COVID happened and the size and the scope of our market accelerated 100x overnight. Because every company that had some sort of field marketing or in-person conference budget they now needed to direct that money to digital community. Or if a company had digital community, they had to double down. So COVID was a massive tailwind for, for us. We actually hosted the, the community industry's first ever completely virtual conference, which really built up the momentum and hype around what we were doing. And after that conference, I remember one investor reached out and then another investor reached out and then 25 investors reached out and we, we closed our seed round and you know our series A round, like we were off to the races and we started to build out a team. When I'd tell my friends from high school all the craziness that was happening, or my parents, and the kind of like bewilderment in their eyes when I'd tell them, oh, we raised millions of dollars, they, they couldn't even process it. They'd be like, that's unbelievable. Like, wow, it's, you know, it's crazy. And that's when I realized, like, there's a very small subset of human beings that have ever been able to do stuff like this before. And uh, that's when it really hit me. I was very fortunate to be in a position to, to have people take a bet on me and on us to build a, a big business that was going to change a lot of people's lives. People were taking a bet on Comscore, investing millions into this small company full of hope. This was validation. Now Jacob could think back on that day his friends made those backhanded remarks about his company and think, I told you so. In startup culture, he had found a place he could thrive where most would fail. And this would prepare him not just for the cutthroat culture of business, but also a global pandemic. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic had destroyed or maimed almost every business out there. Some would never bounce back. As of late 2020, 97,966 businesses had shut down permanently. But Jacob experienced the opportunity imbued within disruption. Comscore was an undeniable success, greater than he or his co-founder could have anticipated. But things weren't going to continue heading in a positive direction for long. I'm curious about, I guess, like you were part of this dream and vision and it had tons and tons of success, right? You're like, like you said, 
mind-boggling to a lot of people. I'm wondering what your thought process is to leave what seems like the dream for so long. Like, what? why? We basically decided to build authentic relationships and free, valuable content for people first and give people a network and ask for nothing in return. And that was all done through the community club, through our Slack, our forum, our newsletter, our eventual podcast. As a result, people just like organically found their way into our sales pipeline. Like they wanted to buy from us you know, because we built up such great mindshare and a relationship with them. And that side of it excited me a hundred X more than, you know, scaling, a, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, just boring, you know, B2B SaaS company in a sense, like the playbook's been written. Like it, it, it's known how to, to build software companies. And that, you know, that could be immensely profitable, but yes. does it feed like uh, the Lego building soul? <laughs> exactly. Does it feed the creative, the Lego building soul, the, the co community building soul? Um, you know, maybe, maybe not as much. So I think that coupled with just, you know, different ideas of maybe where the company was going to, to go led me to ultimately make the decision that I wanted to, to step back into a you know, lesser role. Um, still be involved, obviously very excited and have strong vested interest for the company to succeed. Um, but that's what led me to launch house. Here's the thing, a company, especially when it's your first startup becomes like inextricably intertwined to your identity. Like startups become a part of you. So, you know, even if I had a rational reason to want to do something else, there's like a part of your identity and your emotion that's wrapped up in it, which, which makes it, which makes it challenging. Did it feel like a breakup? It definitely felt like a breakup, <laughs> a, a, a bad breakup, but at the same time, like a massive relief. This business breakup ripped Jacob's identity in half. Comsor was something that he had poured his blood, sweat, and tears. It was a project he had built from the ground up, and it had been successful. But Jacob's passion was community building, and he wasn't prepared to sacrifice what his soul needed in order to scale. In pulling back, Jacob would discover a more central calling, one aligned with who he wanted to be. The best communities start completely by accident. That's how Launch House was born. What was that accident? I accidentally booked a trip to Tulum to share an Airbnb with Tulum, Mexico with 15 strangers. They were all founders. So I met this guy online. We got down there. It was a big, fun, co-living, co-working experiment in a beautiful mansion. We basically learned two things from that experience. One, that something truly magical happens when you put that many brilliant, driven, entrepreneurial people together in, in one place and you shorten the feedback loops and forcing functions that was definitely a forcing function for you know entrepreneurial energy just to big bangs and collisions and it was a community like nothing i'd ever felt before and i'd studied and seen thousands of communities i'd talked with thousands you know, hundreds if not thousands of community builders through the course of building community club and comsor and i'd never felt an energy like that and that's when i knew there was something special and the second big learning from that experiment was that the outside world actually cared about this and we learned that because as a total joke, we made some social media accounts, put up an Instagram, a Twitter, or a landing page, and decided to call what we were doing the launch house. And it was a complete parody and farce on this idea of like the TikTok creator house, houses that were being spun up out here in LA. It was built on a joke. It was built on a joke. The hype house. It's like, it was like the hype house. And then the internet basically memed us into existence. So a New York Times reporter tweeted that we were the next TikTok hype house, but for the tech industry. And uh, next thing we know, like all these publications are reaching out. We're on the front page of TechCrunch. 
and it's uh it's it becomes a thing when you're seeing this become a thing like you're getting articles written about you are you like fuck this joke is not a joke yeah that's again there's been so many moments in my life where i'm like you know it feels like an out-of-body experience and it's surreal this was leagues wilder than those experiences because you know even though we were scaling fast at comms for like there's only so much hype and attention that something like that can garner but this was a you know community and an idea that like anyone in the world could get behind no one had ever lifted the veil of mystique that you know surrounds early stage startup founders so we were we knew we were onto something really really unique so me and uh the guy that put the house together michael and brett who is he's been a serial entrepreneur and startup guy we had a pretty great trio and us three decided to put our heads together and find out how this could become a real long-term sustainable community what are the tenets of building something like that because i imagine there's a lot of shared tenants from the community building that you've done you know through the internet and at scale but this one feels different because it's like you're living in this house with the other people you're intensely integrated into it at least right now and like you're feeling the energy 24 7 almost which is like intoxicating so it's definitely there i think it, there's definitely a lot shared between the communities that you built before but there's like some x factor that's at play that's like that makes us different i mean the x factor is that we were literally living with our users how many people can say that they have built products where they're really living with their early customers not not many, which is just which is wild. Even my, my co-founder Brett was sharing a bed with someone in the community at one point. So we were not only living, we were literally sleeping with our users. But the other thing is, you know, when you have a, in order to build a successful community, you really need three things. One, you need a very strong reason to gather and to come together. And for this, it was obvious, right? Meet other smart people and, uh, you know, spend those seemingly mundane moments like, you know, creating a sandwich in the kitchen, uh, you know, or sitting on the couch with other brilliant people that like, you know, can help you get to where you want to go further and faster. Like that's that's appealing to people. That's a strong reason to gather. So strong communities need a reason to gather, number one. But at number two, a strong reason to keep gathering or to re-engage. And number three, they need to be incorporated into your sense of identity. Like the best communities, they feel like you're joining a movement. When we were in the early stages of building this this community, we, we knew that we had number one unequivocally. But two and three, getting people to come back and also wanting to have them incorporate, you know, being a launch house member into part of their identity was was tough and that's something that we've just now started to figure out it's crazy to think that you know now we're sitting here recording this podcast in paris hilton and cardi b's former former beverly hills estate uh and we've got the the, the product working and the, the, the you know the seeds of just like an amazing community that's going to evolve into to an ecosystem that will that will positively impact the lives of, of tens of thousands of founders and creators over the coming years Jacob found the nexus between business and community, a collision of passion and inspiration. Some may think that business destroys community, that money taints the purity of connection, but it seems like Jacob has just found a way to make that community a self-sustaining ecosystem, and he's made that his mission. This mission renewed his identity. He knew based off his experience with Comsor that when you're intimately tied to something, whether that's an idea, community, or a movement, it becomes a part of you. And I think Jacob is happy that Launch House has become part of him. So what is the Launch House today? And what does the future look like for you? So the Launch House today is a co-living community for top founders and creators. Every month, we bring in 25 new people to live with us out here in LA. And the experience in the community basically acts as rocket fuel for your startup. We've had founders come through here that had never met 
they formed companies. Those companies got into Y Combinator, top accelerators like Village Global, apps that went from zero to 20 million users in the course of like a week and a half. We have the inklings of like a really, really special community here. And as far as where it's going, you know, this is more than just a house. It's more than just four walls, as we keep talking about. It's more than one environment. It's more than, than 30 days. It's more than 25 founders every month. It is going to be an ecosystem of digital communities, more physical houses in every major city, and a media brand that showcases all the awesomeness and innovation that's happening with, with the companies and creators that are coming through. And the big vision, as I said, is to profoundly impact the lives of the people and give them an opportunity and a network and a platform that they've never had the opportunity to have. You have seemed to always either want to become part of a community or if that's not possible, build your own. It seems like your whole life has been centered around this idea of observing and integrating into communities. And this is another one. You had another community that you created. What's your role in this community? Like, just like, how do you feel? Does this feel like home? Like, because you told me what, like, it should be for other people. But I'm wondering, like, what is it to you specifically? How do you feel about it? I feel strange, man. I, I, I really do. I'm like incredibly humbled and blessed to be the one that's architecting this vision that I know is going to impact the lives of so many people. You know, we're all sharing the same house together right now, but I have to walk around and be focused on solving everyone else's problems, making sure that the operations are running smoothly. And like if a dish or a piece of trash or something's out of place, like I'm compelled to want to go pick it up and fix it. And like, I, I actually wish more than anything that I could be in their shoes and see what it's like to be an actual member of this community and this experience. So I feel in a, in a, in a strange place in that, in that regard. But I think as far as where I've now realized that, you know, I get my dopamine hits from and what, what I want to be doing and, and spending my time for the rest of my life, it's, I think it's truly being that connectionist. You know, one of the, the big pillars through which we're building this community and, and this company is it's the same as what we did at Comstar Community Club. And that's to be completely community first. Like everything we do, every decision we make, everything we want to do as far as, you know, pricing or types of media and content that we create, like it all has to be done through the lens of like what is going to positively affect or impact the community member. My role is basically being a good steward of that principle and that cultural pillar that we're trying to create here. We've talked about loops and breaking them. And it seems like this launch house is the ultimate loop breaker. It's taking cohorts of people that desire to break the loop and giving them maybe the tools and connections with which they can break them. But to make this question a little bit more personal and, and also just using that as a framework, when you were trying to break your loops, you know, like the loop of JP Morgan, like what advice do you think would be meaningful to that person or helpful. The first thing is to recognize that everything in your life to a degree is a loop. So as soon as you realize the different loops that make up your life, only then do you have the possibility to veer outside them and to break the loops. You know, if you walk a certain way to and from work every single day, if you commute in a major city, take a different path. You know, instead of going to the same happy hour gatherings after work, go to a random meetup recognize the loops that make up your life and proactively find ways to get outside them and then set an intention that you want to break the loops tell other people that you want to be a loop breaker you know i wouldn't be where i am today if i hadn't told my friend that i wanted to start a company and then she introduced me to her brother and i took her up on that introduction and really pressed her hard the, the more you can scale yourself and scale your intentions and have other people you know thinking about you while you sleep and you know advocating for you on your behalf like that's a way to create a new system and a structure and, a, and discover a new world for yourself. For his entire life, Jacob has been building. As a kid, he pieced Lego blocks together, a tangible private outlet for his creativity. 
In his teenage years, he built an impenetrable facade of cool in order to move upward in the social scene to be accepted by his peers. And by the time he reached adulthood, he was building companies. But amidst it all, through the endless hours and sleepless nights, Jacob identified the one thing that was most important, community. It was something that defied time, something that could both exist within a person and outside a person. By building communities, Jacob was able to break the loop, branch out of normality, and establish something greater than himself. Launch House became the physical embodiment of that vision. So as you move forward with your day, try something different. Take the first step towards building something new. Explore a different coffee shop, run a different trail, or say hi to an unfamiliar face. Break your loop. And like Jacob said, discover a new world for yourself. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Lingmu Hu, with support from Tiffany Dang, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. See more of what we're up to. Subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.